This is Language Made Difficult, an Atelic part of the SpecRam podcast. Welcome to our Linguistics Roundtable Telesymposium. I'm Trey Jones, and joining me today are the rest of the Ling Nerds, Bill Spruill. Hey. Keith Slater. Great to be with you. And Sherry Wells-Jensen. Hi there. And also joining us again on the program is Jason Wells-Jensen. Welcome back, Jason. <laughs> nice to be back. Good to have you back. <laughs> so let's start off with some lies, damn lies, and linguistics. All right, you guys know the drill. We have three language-related items, and two of them are true. And only one of them is false. Sherry, only one of them is false. Only one only of one. them. Only one. Okay, I'm writing it down. <laughs> okay. You guys have to figure out what's what. And then after you make your choices, we will discuss. Our theme this time is useless works. Item number one. Mesrop Mashtot, creator of the Armenian alphabet, also created the Caucasian Albanian alphabet, which was used from the 5th to 12th centuries, but was then lost. Item number two. Radislav Filipov created a dictionary of Bulgarian in 1258. Due to his fondness for older, more traditional sources, it was woefully out of date before he finished compiling it, and today it is best known as a somewhat inaccurate reference for Old Church Slavonic. Item number three. In 1492, Antonio de Nebrija wrote a grammar of Spanish, which was the first ever published grammar of Romance language, and he presented it to Queen Isabella. When she got it, she asked, why would I want to work like this? I already know the language. All right, who wants to go first? Me, me, me. All right, Keith. Okay. I do better if I don't hear anybody else's answers. So Mesrop Mashtots created uh, this alphabet, which was used from the 5th to the 12th centuries and then lost. I'm having a little difficulty believing your story about something that was, quote unquote, you say lost, because presumably you don't have any way of proving that. But as Bill often reminds us, we should be prepared to accept anything about a Caucasian language. So I'm going to say that one is true. Okay, now the Dictionary of Bulgarian, which was out of date because of his fondness for traditional sources. That is so much what I aspire to do. Every <laughs> linguist wants to create a dictionary that turns out to be out of date. And so I want that to be true, and therefore it is. And so that leaves the last one. I can talk myself into this being false. So you give the queen a grammar of a romance language, what she's going to say, she's naturally inclined toward pedantry. That's, she's a queen. So naturally, she would like to have a grammar. She would connect with a grammar. She would appreciate a grammar. That would give her rules. And so she's going to like that. So I think that one must be false. She must have accepted the grammar with great enthusiasm or else you made this up and there never was a grammar. <laughs> we may never know. <laughs> We're going to know in a minute. <laughs> All right. Who'd like to go next? Okay, I'll go. I'll go because I'm going to agree with Keith. And I hate to do this because it, it... <laughs> it's heartening to me, though. Well, I appreciate that. But, it, <laughs> uh, but my reasons at least are completely different. Every time well, okay, so I've heard you say it once now, but I can't even remember what you said for number one, even though I tried to write it down as you said it. So that <laughs> makes me think that that's probably true. Because it, <laughs> it was so deeply insightful that you can't it remember. Was, Actually, yeah, it was really... I don't, every time I don't remember something that you said, I just assume that it was true. I think that's a good rule to live by. If you don't remember it, then you don't have any business questioning it, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm leaving number one alone. I'm leaving number two alone by the process of elimination. I think the Spanish one has to be the lie because, and forgive me, hang on, follow this logic here with me, because I think that if it were true, I would have heard about it. And that, I think, is really super shaky grounds to base anything on. <laughs> Actually thinking that I really know the answer. And so I have to unthink myself. And so I'm going to say that the Spanish one is the lie because I think it's true. Wait a minute. Didn't we just agree that if you didn't hear something, you should assume it was true? Yeah, but that's if I didn't hear it. 
This is if I didn't learn it. You said you I think that I would should, have learned I, it if it was true. Yeah, so therefore it's a lie. Okay. Now I don't think I don't I, you know, I don't know if all of all of those negs were consistent in all of those sentences, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Okay. All right. I am sort of torn on this one. I think the third one is true. But the other two are both making me suspicious. First of all, Mesrot Mashtote sounds like an anagram. Uh-oh. So, yes, it does. Uh-oh. you know, it's like noted <laughs> Swedish Viking mop stoat masher. <laughs> and you just rearranged it. Mesrot Mashtots or something like that. But I don't know much about Armenian, so that could all be legit and is just triggering my anagram. All their names are anagrams. But there is also that problem about how would we know that there was a Caucasian-Albanian alphabet if it was lost, as Keith pointed out. And two, why is that useless? They lost various old writing systems, but they've gotten linguist jobs. So the fact they lost it just makes it more valuable from some perspectives. Then with the Bulgarian, there's a similar kind of thing. When has it ever been a disadvantage for a dictionary to be woefully out of date? That's what they are. And even if it's a somewhat inaccurate reference for Old Church Slavonic, as far as we know, all references to Old Church Slavonic are potentially well, probably pretentiously, but potentially somewhat <laughs> inaccurate. So given the two, my suspicion is that the second one is the false one, just because the first one looks too tempting to think it's actually false. It's all about the mind games. Yeah, yeah. I'm not going to like go wild with subjunctives like Sherry did, because that way <laughs> lies madness, but... <laughs> I'm not even sure what it is that I said looking back on it, but I'm sticking with it. You I'm sure it was one. true. <laughs> Were you to have said what I potentially was thinking you had said, it would not have been something that should be said. I think you might be sure at least one a spectral marker there, but I'm not sure. <laughs> it was a silent one. <laughs> <laughs> They have those in Old Church Slavonic, I hear. At least that's what it said in that dictionary. Well, though they were all omitted from the dictionary because they were silent. Well, there was silent aspect, and then there was palatalized silent aspect. <laughs> I am so going to make a phonology problem with that in it. <laughs> all right, so Bill, I got you as number two is the false one? Right. Okay. Wow, I can't believe you followed that. That's <laughs> so amazing. that's two threes and a two so far. Jason? You know, that's what I thought about 15 minutes ago when Bill started his answer. I thought I was agreeing with him. <laughs> I guess I'm happy to see that my intuition was borne out. I think I am agreeing with Bill. I'm not sure for the same reasons. I'm pretty sure that my geeky teenage daughter told me once about the episode of Doctor Who, where the doctor <laughs> traveled back to 13th century Bulgaria. So I'm thinking there's no reason for that dictionary to be out of date. Um, (laughs) as for queen isabella i'm totally down with that you know she knows the language why does she want yeah that's fine as for mesrop mashtots yeah i'm pretty sure that all armenian names are anagrams (laughs) so the alphabet was lost in the 12th century i'm thinking our kids had a set of alphabet blocks like 10 years ago that we can only find one of now so that's totally (laughs) believable to me so yeah i'm going for number two also were your kids Caucasian Albanian alphabet blocks? <laughs> well, you know, 
<laughs> they're lost. How do you know? Oh, right. Yeah. Never mind. <laughs> Dumb question. Yeah. Actually, I think they had Soto numbers on half of the faces. <laughs> <laughs> on the adjectival half of the blocks. Exactly. I think they were, they were Braille face. IPA blocks. But really, honestly, I'm feeling pretty <laughs> insouciant about having lost them because it's just the natural order of things. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's see. What did he pick? <laughs> <laughs> Number two. Number two. two. Same as Bill. Okay. Same as Bill. And they are, in fact, both correct. <gasps> oh, come on. Keith. <laughs> <laughs> that was harsh, Trey. You're supposed to start and let us down. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I just completely made that up. I got to go write a letter to somebody rather who I had in grad school somewhere who I thought, oh, never mind. Wait a minute. Radoslav Filipov is a made up name. It is. <laughs> Antonio de Nebrija and Mesrop Mashtots aren't? That is correct. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I salute you. You know, there's a special knack for finding real names that don't look like real names. I've got to, got to salute you for that. <laughs> Thank you. So, Trey, did you make up Radislav Filipov with any aids or did it just pop out that way? Uh, no, I have sources. That's what I thought. So you didn't really make it up. You cribbed it. Well, I just it's a random name that is Bulgarian. I mean, it's a random Bulgarian first name and a random Bulgarian last name. There's a real Radislav Filipov who's coming to find you. <laughs> yeah, I say you're going to get a couple angry emails, I'm thinking. Unless they were alive in 1258, I'm pretty sure I'm not talking about them. So I'm not worried. It's a descendant. It's a long line <laughs> of linguists who do whatever it is you said he did. <laughs> Back in number two. <laughs> so on the subject of other things Sherry can't remember, the first one. <laughs> 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 so <laughs> Mesrop Mashtots did create the Caucasian Albanian alphabet, and it was used from the 5th to 12th centuries, and then it was lost. But it was rediscovered in 1937 by a Georgian scholar investigating an Armenian language manual from the 15th century. And he found the sample of the alphabet, and they eventually figured out that it was this uh, lost Caucasian Albanian alphabet. You the sample have... was recorded in the 15th century, did you say? Yeah, that I thought that was interesting, yeah. That invalidates your your dates here, right? No, because you it said was, it was lost in the 12th century. I did not. You century. inferred that. I said it was used from the 5th to 12th centuries. It probably was then Ooh. not used. And then after the 15th century, it was lost. My order is fine. <laughs> well, so somebody who was using it didn't lose it. Right. They'd like put it on a shelf somewhere. They'd stopped using then, it. That's how things get lost, yeah. right? That's what happened with the blocks. That's true. You stop using that's them, true. you lose them. I'm wondering if the guy who found it, did he just like step on it in the dark? Then? I mean, <laughs> that's, what, that's what happened Ow! in the Legos. <laughs> you left his alphabet here. <laughs> if you play with your alphabet every day, and then if you put it away at night, you will not have these issues. Natural consequences, <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. And finally, with the third item, Queen Isabella did in fact say, why would I want a work like this? I already know the language. And Nabriha replied, Majesty, the language is the instrument of the empire. See, see, I told you it was all about pedantry. <laughs> so she didn't have him beheaded or whatever. I guess it was okay. They never told me. Why would? Why did they never tell me? My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, the good news is, Sherry, you're still in first place. Ha ha! Gloat! With 57%. <laughs> However, I am catching up now with 56%. Bill has 50%. And Jason, you've done great things for the guests, up to 42%. Forty-two. <laughs> Keith noticed that you weren't between Bill and the guests. No, I, noticed, I, I thought maybe that meant something. 
he doesn't always do things in order, Keith. It could have been. It's possible. But it wasn't. I may have vaulted head into the lead. <laughs> By getting one wrong this time? Yeah, that. You could have circled around back and come up the other <laughs> way or something. Uh, possibly. So do, you guys, so do you guys who do this every week keep track of your own scores, or do you just trust Trey to use his mysterious <laughs> algorithm to decide who... Oh. That's a really good point, but don't mention it because I'm doing just fine. Thank you. <laughs> Um, we don't neither. We do not keep track of our own. <laughs> <laughs> or do we trust Trey? <laughs> but hey, this is all for entertainment value. It's not like anybody's trying to win or anything. Said no, the guy no. in last place with thirty eight percent. No, we don't try, Keith. It just comes naturally to us. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Well, bye. <laughs> <laughs> Such insouciant gloating. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll do it for Lies, Damn Lies, and Linguistics. Jason, thanks for hanging out with us again. Hey, thank you. And we will be right back after a word from our sponsor to discuss some linguistic news. Hi, this is Philip Resnick, and you're listening to Language Made Difficult. Hey there, this is Jean-Bob Bobineau down at Bobineau's Linguistic Warehouse with another fine deal for you today. We've got acophonemes, and they are genuine Kolewoviches. I know you are probably saying, Jean-Bob, those are not real Kurovoviches, those are Movoviches or Larovoviches, but I assure you these are the real thing. They got the squiggly L on the bottom and everything, and they're way, way better than some underspecified segment somebody sold you off a dock. Put one of them in analysis, you don't know what it's going to do. It don't know what it's going to do. It's underspecified. Hockaphonium will get in there and do what you want it to. So get yourself down to Bobino's Linguistic Warehouse and pick some up. Bring along a friend that's corpus linguist. We might throw in a couple of derichlets. We got a consignment of them this week. So see you around. Welcome back, everybody, to Language Made Difficult. Today, we're going to be talking about an article titled Non-Human Primate Vocalizations Support Categorization in Very Young Infant Humans by three authors, Ferry, Hespos, and Waxman, which was reported on by NPR. Previous study by the authors had shown that three-month-old babies could form categories like dinosaur while watching dinosaurs on a computer screen and listening to humans say things like, look at the Toma, or look at the Modi. I don't know why they use Toma and Modi instead of a dinosaur. But they did. They also found that pure tones did not help the babies form these categories. This current paper is an extension of that work where they tested a vocalization of a blue-eyed Madagascar lemur to see if it helped with the categorization. And they also looked at the same earlier human speech they had used in the previous experiment, but played backwards. And they found that the lemur screeches did aid in categorization of the three-month-olds, but that, interestingly, reversed human speech did not. And then at six months... The effect was pretty much gone, and babies no longer responded to lemur screeches or anything else other than normal human speech in terms of forming these categories. So the researchers conclude that babies respond to language and not just complex auditory signals like reverse speech, and that somehow lemur screeches are more speech-like than reverse speech. Other than proving what I've always said, which is that baby talk is a terrible idea, what does it all mean? Keith? <laughs> baby talk is a terrible idea. I can see your point. Well, you know, it seems obvious to me that the children, the precocious three-month-olds, must have thought that the lemur calls were actually the dinosaur calls. They must have thought, well, these are the voices of the things we're looking at. So the question that comes to me 
is the so-called human languages that the babies heard in the first experiment must have sounded more like dinosaurs and lemur screeches than the backward speech did. So what I want to know is which languages were these that sounded so much like dinosaur calls? Can you tell us that, Trey? Was this, you know, Swedish or... No, I I think it was English. From what I read, they actually said, look at the Toma. Oh, you mean the word Toma and Modi? Yeah, I don't know why they chose those. No, no. I wondered which which actual languages. So it was English that sounds just like lemurs, but not backwards, right? Right. Uh, I'm doubtful about the whole thing. I think it okay. proves that baby talk is a good idea. Because <laughs> lemurs do it. <laughs> well, it makes sense to me that the intonation patterns might be the same. I don't know how to be a lemur. I wish I could remember what lemurs really sound like. But, I mean, backwards speech would have really weird intonation curves. I don't know. Which would be sort of disturbing. <laughs> it would have weird especially, intonation curves. Especially if you're doing this and play it backward. I think that would be terrifying. <laughs> so instead of being welcoming and, and lighthearted, it would be, be the same as yelling at your baby, go away, I hate you. <laughs> it would just be alien. You are not loved. <laughs> now I'm wishing that I had some so I could play it backward and see how terrifying it is. I think it'd be really scary. What, backwards speech? Backwards well, mother ease. Backwards mother ease oh, with those big right. intonation. I don't know. I think it's <laughs> but it's an interesting claim and pretty unbelievable that the lemur screeches were more like human speech than the human speech played backwards. Yeah. That just seems what, weird. I mean, they so totally do they go up? Do they go down? I mean, they're grunts and just sort of squeals and stuff. I mean, it, it's not. It's not going to be within the same vocal range, right? I mean, the pitch ranges are going to be way out somewhere else. A primatologist will probably cringe at this, but to me it sounded like, you know, your standard monkey screech, you know, variation on the standard monkey screech. Ah! How could you say that? (laughs) Ow. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so yeah, it's nothing at all like like reverse speech. And, you know, having grown up listening to music in the 80s, You've heard reverse speech. I've heard plenty of backmasking in rock music, yeah. And I think one thing the study does is, you know, put to rest any lingering worries about that because it doesn't <laughs> matter what the messages are might be there because they're not going to get through anyway because your brain doesn't process the <laughs> speech. Go. We're all safe. Well, I got. I have a couple of theories on this. One is you notice that the babies stop paying attention to this at what, like around six months? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you think about infants... They got those freaky big heads and giant eyes, and they just kind of stare at things. All right, past a few weeks. I mean, when they can stare, they just stare at things. So they're much like lemurs in a way. (laughs) And we have to ask, what kind of selectional pressures would make it beneficial to be able to communicate with lemurs at a very young age? So. I think this is clearly evidence there was some sort of like lemur, infant, human knowledge exchange going on in the Paleolithic or something like that, right? (laughs) The infants of your hunting group would communicate with the lemurs for you. And see, when they grow and become less lemur-like, then presumably they're triggering the wrong responses from the lemurs. So this could all be because of not wanting to offend the lemur overlords. <laughs> well, they're called lemurs, right? The, all the Lemurian stuff. I mean, they probably <laughs> rule everybody if their continent hadn't sunk. 
I guess okay. they didn't say what the lemurs were really talking about, did they? No, no, because only infants understand that. Once they start getting adult human categorization patterns, they cannot comprehend the highly abstract eight-dimensional logic behind lemur cult. That's how that works. Now, that was the scientific theory, of course. The purely speculative one is that one of the weird things about backward speech is when you play speech backwards, each of the, quote, syllables, unquote, gets louder towards the end. Mm-hmm. How many normal syllables do that? Oh, my God. I think I just realized that David Attenborough speaks backwards. <laughs> <laughs> That must be really complicated for him. (laughs) I never really wondered what the answer to that question was before, and I need to go check. But I know there are lots of arguments about, are syllables real? And what are the underlying characteristics that makes a syllable? And they don't normally have continuous amplitude, do they? No, no, they peak in the middle, right? Sort yeah. of, but, but I think uh, you but might Bill be right. said in the toward the beginning, right? Or that what? makes that makes pretty good sense because you've got lots of vowels with off glides and stuff. And how often do you have syllables like dia, ja? Now, yeah, some tonal languages. I realize there's a relationship between tone and amplitude, and it's not a simple matter, right? Because it's hard to get louder without the tone going up a little bit. Mm-hmm. But on average. Are there normally amplitude changes over the course of a syllable that are not absolutely symmetric? Is the amplitude peak really going to be in the middle of a syllable, or is it going to tend to edge towards the front? I think it's more in the front in English. I I think from what it sounds like backwards, right? In in English, when you play backwards, it's like... So there was an old theory about syllables that I don't think is still adhered to, but the old theory was it was chest pulses. It was pulses of air you made. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you come out with a pulse, then you come out with another pulse. And so, you know, the idea there is you start with higher pressure and then you release it some and the amplitude goes down with the air pressure, right? Yeah. Right. Okay. So that works really well with the backward speech thing because in that view, syllables are really real things and you don't pulse your chest backwards like that. But lemurs making calls would do it the same way humans would. They draw in some air, they release a call, they start with more air pressure than they end with, right? Right. That makes sense. So the backward stuff from that view is contradicting human physiology. There are sound sequences the human physiology does not normally do. So Sherry has pointed out the uh, the problem with your theory. Lemurs don't have human physiology. No, no, which is that it seems quite reasonable. <laughs> now what are we going to do? <laughs> so in this article, there's a comment by someone else who's, who wasn't part of the research, and she summarizes saying it's not actually clear whether the primate sounds are somehow tapping into linguistic knowledge or a linguistic wiring in the brain, or maybe they're just getting the babies to pay attention. You know, look, which brings which brings us back <laughs> so. to what are those lemurs saying to those babies, right? Hey, pay attention over here, pay attention. It's the lemurs. We're talking to you now. Yeah, but I mean, the idea that to ignore what you said completely, the idea that there's actually some kind <laughs> yeah, of communication are... going on <laughs> is really not shown here. I mean, it might be. I don't think the hypothesis is that there's any communication going on so much as well communication in the sense of actually you know relaying a full a complete thought or anything yeah, yeah, yeah. but rather that you know that certain patterns of sound mean pay attention 
right? And so yeah. Bill's mm-hmm. Bill's explanation actually kind of works because the other, you know, one of the other options was just tones, yeah. right? Which definitely don't have any chest pulses in them. Well, again, the idea that syllables are chest pulses, as far as I understand, that's now viewed as a dramatic oversimplification. Sure, but it's a convenient, yeah. it's a convenient simplification. You know, yeah. there is that pattern to the yeah. pressure and volume and everything else. It is very difficult to make a good reverse sound, a reverse mm-hmm. speech sound. Yeah. Right. Well, so I said that wrong. Right. They weren't claiming there was communication going on. But if what's happening is that somehow the infants are connecting these lemur sounds with something linguistic, so they, you know, some sort of linguistic wiring in the brain, then it's their reason their attention would be grabbed is because they're orienting toward proto-communication, right? Right. Not that there was intended communication coming the other way. Right. But that they're trying to make it into communication. So I want to know what the parameters of this are. So if human speech or lemur speech, whatever, is, is the prototype of the category, then I want to know, and backward speech is outside the category, then what else would work? Like, would meowing work? <laughs> would dog barking work? So my hypothesis would be that meowing might work, but that barking would not work. Yeah, I think so. Because barking is too disconnected, right? But you can you can meow along. and. <laughs> You can meow along and make it seem all continuous and flowy, right? So then would bird song work? What about some kinds of music? Would that work? Hmm. Well, when you pluck a string on a stringed instrument, the sound starts out louder, right? Yeah, like a string on a perfectly fine, nice ukulele that you would pluck. It does start out louder. <laughs> okay, well, that we beautiful. wouldn't have to restrict ourselves to ukuleles. You wouldn't have to, but... <laughs> I would agree that I think a ukulele would be slightly... Less horrible than a lemur screech. (laughs) Depends on how in tune the lemur is. (laughs) Whether it's warmed up its voice or not. (laughs) Or we could just argue there's some sort of babies just instinctively know that lemurs are creepy. (laughs) And that's what gets their attention, really. Or lemurs are cute or something like that. We could test that by adding lemurs to television ads and see how it affects buyer behavior. <laughs> Aren't there little kid shows with lemurs on there? Isn't there a lemur? Oh, uh, isn't, isn't, what's his nose? Is it a boomafoo? Isn't he a lemur? Kids love him. Oh, why? What? <laughs> <Who>? <laughs> what, don't you guys watch PBS kid shows? <laughs> I used to. Which one? Zaboomafoo. Zaboomafoo, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. Zaboomafoo is a lemur. He is, I think so, yeah. And, that and sounds like adorable. a Sosotho numeral. <laughs> <laughs> he's a cute little lemur, and everybody thinks he's awesome, right? So I think so. Hmm. Sherry's laid out a nice uh, plan for future investigations that are going to keep the authors in publications for quite a while, right? Now we tried cats. Now we tried yeah, you know, a, a range of mammals, and then then we plug in effects pedals next. <laughs> See with some distortion, with some reverb. <laughs> we'll try some <laughs> reptile noises. <laughs> David Attenborough. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Hmm. So I did have one other thought, which is that basically they're saying that babies don't really make any important distinctions between adult speech and screeching lemurs at three months old, which I do think is fair, given that I don't make much of a distinction between a screeching three-month-old and a screeching lemur. (laughs) Now that I no longer have any three-month-olds in my life. Yay. (laughs) So sentimental.
(laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I think maybe that's going to be the last word on this particular topic. So we will be right back after a word from our sponsor to talk about some qualifying exam questions. Want to learn all 6,000 languages, but find you never have the time? Then why not learn the following expression? I am a linguist. Répétez, s'il vous plaît. I am a linguist. And many of your acquaintances will be wowed by their own assumptions that you speak all the languages of the world. This public service announcement is brought to you by the Speculative Grammarian Council of Lonely Linguists. Linguists need love, too. Well, welcome back to Language Made Difficult. Attention, grad students. It's time once again for the Ling Nerds to give you some patented Language Made Difficult comprehensive exam answers. Now, I have to say something different this time. The legal department has informed me that I cannot actually promise you that you will get these particular questions on your comprehensive exam. But let's just say, does the bear do her business in the woods? So listen up, because this is definitely news you can use. Today's theme is linguistic theories, because you need to understand the tribal groupings that linguists belong to. You know, what are the in-group identifiers of these clans and how can they be classified, you know, from a purely scientific point of view. So we'll talk about some linguistic theories. And here we go. The first question has to do with the theory of the uh, theoretical camp of language documentation. So the recently emerged field of language documentation claims that the goal of linguistics, rather than analyzing the observable and or underlying structures of human languages, ought instead to be creating a full and complete record of the natural usages of those structures. The goal here is a sort of language ecology, which shows how each individual language interacts with its entire ecological niche. So here's the question. Given unlimited time and funding, how would you approach the task of satisfying this documentation goal for any given language? Who'd like with to insouciance. <laughs> Bill with insouciance. Uh, that's that's an excellent answer. Would anyone like to add to that? Do you think that you're going to get away with that? It's kind of a short answer. <laughs> well, he's going to give more in a minute. Okay. So I did not recognize the underlying theme of theoretical approaches and camps. And so my answer is sort of atheoretical, <laughs> as is much of computational linguistics. And also language documentation. Go yes. ahead. <laughs> well, given unlimited time and unlimited funding and the unstoppable power of Moore's Law, which roughly states that computer power doubles every 18 months or so, eventually we're either going to get strong AI or the ability to copy human brains directly into a computational substrate. In either case, you end up with a limitless number of ageless undying computers that can learn human languages, and you can even make a copy at any point to maintain a particular unchanging version of a native speaker's mind, right? And so what better documentation than a large collection of instantly available actual native speakers? Computers, you mean? That's what I said. Sort of soulless, isn't it? (laughs) Okay, so... Well, hold on a minute, soulless. (laughs) You say that with such insouciance, like like I'm not going to come back with like that matters, yeah. <laughs> well, it depends on how you feel about Searle's Chinese room, right? I mean, clearly he doesn't understand how computers work, and now I wonder maybe you don't either. <laughs> well, uh, Trey, since you just told us that computers, they've been telling us this since before any of us were born. Oh, a couple of years now. Oh, give it 20 years. and Now, you know. now, it's always 50. <laughs> okay, give it 50 years. <laughs> it's been 50 years for like the last 70 years. What's your point? And my point is that that was all nonsense. Everything you said was all nonsense. F minus. Next. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
I called Trey's answer soulless because that leads into my style for answering this question very nicely, I thought. Because I think that in order to distinguish yourself as a flexible future employee of any number of kinds of configurations of departments, you want to demonstrate that you not only have a grasp of the material, but you are also an artist. I think this is increasingly super important because you might not be being hired by linguists, right? You might be being hired by people who just have no idea what a linguist is, but know that the paper says they need one. So I chose, (laughs) and I recommend this to all grad students with the possible exception of my own, I chose to answer each of these questions in haiku form because I think I won something really important once writing a haiku. (laughs) Or maybe it was something totally worthless. I can't remember. It had something to do with Trey. Yeah. So I've written a haiku to answer this question. Okay. And I think, and and here it is. I present it. I give it to you. To archive Sa'a. And I pick Sa'a because that's just sounds like such a nice language name. And it's in the Solomon Islands. So it's got to be good, right? To archive Sa'a. I'm, I'm, I'm paying careful attention to my syllable. To archive Sa'a, surround yourself with data. Go live on the beach, which is not only poetic, but sound advice, you know, pretty much for anybody in under any circumstances. That's beautiful. Thank you. Soulful. It's soulful. Yeah. Bill, did you have anything you wanted to add? Well, a couple of things. First, I would point out that beaches are highly exposed locations and render one vulnerable to storms and all sorts of threats. You have no cover. <laughs> so cave complexes are the best way to go with that. But I think obviously you've been reading Athanasius Shaden Poodle's work again, haven't you? It is persuasive. But, you know, the reason I said I would approach this with insouciance was that it starts with the phrase, given unlimited time and funding. The reason one documents languages is they don't have unlimited time. So at the beginning, we've got kind of a very abstract view of language here. It's got the problem that you're saying we need to create a complete record of natural usages of these structures, right? But we're not supposed to analyze them. Well, how do we know there are structures unless we analyze them? You have to have faith in your theory. That's a question we don't ask in (laughs) documentation. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, the word structure means there are parts with relationships among the parts, right? Well, it could mean that in some semantics, yeah. In some set of circumstances <laughs> that is coextensive with the set of applications of anything, yep. <laughs> I think you're making bold claims there. I mean, you got to keep in mind that if you're getting your degree in language documentation, you got to take a lot of classes in video methods and you know, sort of um, technical kinds of things. You don't have time to study linguistic theory. So you're going to go into this with a certain uh, shortage of, um, you know, theoretical tools, maybe analytical tools. How do you know when the linguistic event you're recording starts and stops? That's anthropology. You have to study that in order to do documentation. Yeah, but that's kind of an analysis, isn't it? You've decided it has boundaries. Yeah, but not linguistic boundaries. Those are anthropological boundaries. You know, it's an event that we look at, right? The speaker wakes up, the speaker goes to sleep. Clearly, yeah, there you go. something has started and something has ended. <laughs> there you go. That's also an analysis. There are plenty of other times <laughs> a day where that speaker may be motionless. You are attributing <laughs> a different state to the speaker. Having not studied computational anthropology, 
because we don't have any artificial intelligences to work with yet. Give it about 50 years. <laughs> but they've studied you. <laughs> <laughs> I was giving obvious examples. No, it was not an exhaustive list. Anyway, possibly I interrupted Bill. Did you have something else to say? No, it's just that's why I would approach it with insouciance. Oh, I see. I see. I would start picking the question apart. I would only do that if I thought it would not really annoy the readers, though. The committee members, these are comprehensive exam questions. So you're going to be face to face with an angry or peaceful committee. Right. Now, the question you give your committee is different from, I think, the what you do in, in practice, right? So given actual unlimited time and unlimited funding, the maximally insouciant plan would be to request $100 million and 200 years, embezzle $10 million, and go live on the beach with Sherry's haiku. You're only embezzling $10 million of well, the Nobody will notice right away, right? <laughs> it's a rounding error. And to keep you in my ties or whatever it is you need on the beach there. And actually, I mean, along the theme of uh, the fact that the answer that you give to the committee is different, not necessarily identical to what you're going to actually do in the real world. The answer that I would give to this is, given unlimited time and funding, I would approach this task by hiring one postdoc for every faculty member in the department. <laughs> it might or might not solve the problem that was posed, but it would certainly be pleasant to the ears of the committee members. You people don't have a proper appreciation of the term unlimited, do you? <laughs> one postdoc? I think entire <laughs> countries should be conscripted in this. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Mm. Well, and maybe we could raise an army too. Then our dialect would be a language. <laughs> That's right. Our dialects would be promoted. Okay. So that was language documentation. The next theory we're going to approach is sometimes said not to be a theory at all, but this is functional linguistics. And the question for functional linguistics is please define continuum and give an example. Well, am I supposed to design this so it will be liked by non linguists? Uh, no, this is for your comprehensive okay. exam committee. So okay. nine-tenths of them are linguists, and the other one is sorry that he signed up. So I cannot get away with saying it is the plural of continua. No, you cannot. Uh, a continuum is a theoretical construct that has the data that supports one of your claims at one end, the data that support another of your claims at the other end, and all the data that contradicts both of them in the middle. <laughs> Okay. I like that definition. See, I have a very similar definition of continuum, but not nearly as erudite as yours. So to me, a continuum is what you have when you have two things that are really different. And yet somehow they're similar in some way that you can't quite put your finger on. So for example, chocolate and marshmallows, and they fall on the s'mores continuum. Ah. So you need a continuum in order to express that these are really different things, but somehow they're similar. They have smorth. <laughs> Smoreness. Well, uh, Sherry, yes. do you have a definition for continuum? I have a poem, of course. <laughs> <laughs> a haiku, most likely. But I have a question first, because my syllable count is very important to me. So how do you guys feel about the word diked or dyktic? Diked as a clipping like, like, of dyktic. Yeah, like, yeah as, as a clipping. You know, original haikus, I think the count wasn't exactly by syllable. It was by character. Mm. Uh -huh. So you can just claim that whatever writing system you're creating this in has a single character for dyked. Well, I have a substitute ready in case you disapprove of dyked. So 
I think okay. that creativity in language form is an, an important part of poetry. So I think <laughs> if you need to do that for expressive reasons, then you should do it. Okay. All right. Well, and then I'm going to take that as approval of the entire thing then. <laughs> <laughs> I like it already. Yes. This continuum moves smoothly from here to there, going, going, gone. Isn't that lovely? It is, but where was the diked part? Well, I put the this in because I didn't really believe you when you said okay. <laughs> that was the correct move. Yeah. So I put a this in, and I put it in quotation marks. Perhaps you did not hear the quotation marks that I used. I, I missed that part because that was the sort of the subtle bit. Where's that the nature the reference? <laughs> they were palatalized silent quotations. <laughs> they were. Trey, did you have a definition for continuum? I did, but. I want to know, where's your nature reference? It's not a real haiku unless there's a nature reference. Smoothly, smoothly. And here and there. Here and there. Nature. In nature. Smoothly, here and there. Doesn't it have to have, you know, like a, a dragonfly or... <laughs> no, 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 no. No, no, I think here and there. I think that does it. Mm. The characters she's using for here and there have different versions depending on whether it's a natural here and there or whether it's an abstract artificial one. <laughs> Or whether it's peach scented. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I don't think you should get all prescriptive about my art over here. I mean, oh, I see. Yeah, that's good. Uh, exercise great creativity, Trey. I just want to say that I am put off by your insouciance about this, <laughs> and that your haiku without an appropriate nature reference is soulless. soulless. That said, <laughs> you're just jealous. You wrote a random haiku generator, didn't you, Trey? <laughs> no, but I could. I'm sure they were soulless haikus, though, if he did them like that. So anyway, I would say a continuum is a set of elements such that between any two given elements, there is a third element. An example would be the set of real numbers. Hence, in linguistics, there are no actual continua. However, we can pretend that a dialect continuum is an actual continuum, except that it disproves the idea that there's any such entity as a language. I like my memory. I like the conclusion there. <laughs> no, I, that had real snap to it. Hippopotamus. See, now it's a haiku. (laughs) Okay, well, shall we move on to the next theory? Sure. Okay, the next theory is formal linguistics. We're going to talk about formal theories. And the question here is, which linguistic, quote-unquote, theoretical model do you feel has the most, quote-unquote, explanatory power and why? I wanted you to hear the quotation marks, so I, I, I said that. So which linguistic theoretical model do you feel has the most explanatory power and why? All right, I'll do mine first because it Please. is a thing of beauty. Of course. I actually had to exclaim aloud to myself when I wrote this in my meeting this afternoon. <laughs> to explain language, say as little as you can, minimalism. <laughs> <laughs> You guys are not feeling the the haiku love here, I can tell. No, it's just I'm trying to put minimalism and explanatory in my head at the same time, and they're not going together. (laughs) I'm trying to imagine what the character for minimalism looks like. It's just a dot. dot. (laughs) Clearly. (laughs) But it's a binary dot. (laughs) It's one dot. It's not no dot. It's one dot. Which implies no dot. There's your binarism. That works. So I want to go to the other end of the continuum with my answer. So for Sherry, it's minimalism. For me, it's aspects, model, syntax. That had the most explanatory power because it was the only model 
that really let transformations just run rampant. And that pretty much allowed you to capture any way that a language might differ from what you expected by writing a transformation. So I think, you know, wow, that just that could explain anything. Hands down. Easy. Well, the problem I have with this is I I know Chomsky advocates a different definition of the word. But to me, if I don't think there's cause and effect actually involved, I can't call it explanatory. So limited then. Yeah, but it's not really an explanatory model to me unless you can say it's a processing model or it's a production model or it's an interpretation model. And you invest in saying, no, I think what I'm saying has something to do with what's really going on. Because otherwise, why are you doing any of this? Mm -hmm. So you're jumping ahead to the next question, but go ahead and we'll call it this one. So which model? Which linguistic model do you feel has the most explanatory power? I can't name one off the top of my head, but it's any model that is most aligning to the sum total of findings from psycholinguistics, neurolinguistic studies, usage patterns, etc. But you're not aware of such a theory? Well, no, because it would be really titanic. Mm. My answer is somewhat similar to Bill's, but veers off a little bit. And I've created an atheoretic meta-model that measures quote-unquote explanatory power Mm -hmm. in units called quote-unquote publications (laughs) with a binary feature called quote-unquote tenure. (laughs) And so globally, explanatory power is measured in publications per unit time. And the theory with the most publications in a given time span has the most explanatory power in that time span. Locally, explanatory power is measured in the binary feature tenure in that if you have tenure, you have explanatory power. If not, not. (laughs) Yes. I was just going to say, that's soulless in the way that really works. (laughs) Well, to add to the soullessness. I thought it was bunk. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. I do not appreciate the insouciance with which you interrupt my brilliant thoughts. And if I have any, don't interrupt them. (laughs) But instead, I'll go on with this. So in a computational context, though, no theoretical model has been found, getting back to what Bill said, that has any practical power at all. So I further hypothesize (laughs) that explanatory power units are measured in multiples of I, the square root of negative one. And as such, all explanatory power is thus actually imaginary. That's a really complex approach. (laughs) (laughs) Probably more than necessary for your comprehensive exams. You know, I think I just wrote that on a paper a few hours ago. That's a really complex approach. (laughs) Yeah, but when you did it, it probably wasn't a math pun. I got it, Bill. I made a math pun. I didn't know that was a pun. Rats. I was just slapping somebody down is what I was doing. (laughs) How is it that Bill's allowed to make math puns? He's not a computational linguist. Because he can. It's the echo. Bill, did you study math? But I know jargonian. (laughs) I I don't understand jargonian. (laughs) <laughs> I can parrot jargonian. In parrot. Okay. And he knows how to use modulo correctly. Okay, well, before this gets any uglier, let's move on to the last question. So we've done functional linguistics and formal linguistics and language documentation, which is somewhere else. And now we're going to do theories that are on the fence. So it's trendy these days to try to combine formal and functional philosophies into a single theoretical model. This is where Bill wanted to go. Now, in your opinion, which theoretical model does the best job of really being formal but pretending to be functional, too, or vice versa? Well, I'll take a stab at that. I've actually got 
two answers. But starting with the first one, I go for Van Valen's role in reference grammar because it does a very large number of things that functional theories like to do. And it kind of does a lot of things that formal theories like to do, too. I don't know enough of the formal shibboleths to know if it's clearing all of the hurdles in a good way. I, you know, probably nothing does, but it does try to combine those in a number of ways. The second answer, and I'm trying to remember the author and title of the publication, but someone, I think it might be Columbia. There's a paper that argues that minimalism is really functionalism, but with most of the labels change. I think that is the right name. Not that I read the paper, but I think that is the right name. Well, anyone else? Real quick, Minimalism is Functionalism by David Columbia. There you go. It's amazing how many things you know, Trey. You know, that was a haiku. I just counted the syllables. (laughs) Brilliant. That is brilliant. Haiku, yuku, he, she, or it coos. Wiku, (laughs) yuku, theku, thenku. (laughs) Yeah. So I have an answer that was kind of similar to Bill's. I was tempted to go with RRG because it's really trying to do that. But uh, like Bill, I don't have any idea whether it really satisfies anybody on the formalist camp. But what I'm going to go with is optimality theory, which is all couched in terms of constraints, which sound like that would probably refer to linguistic details like facts about actual languages and things that languages want to do and might be functional. But as far as I can tell, the real goal of optimality approaches is just to produce a tidy little chart. And so it's really all about the formalism, not the language details, as best I can tell. Trey? So I think machine learning approaches to computational linguistics can pretend to be formal in that, you know, everything is theoretically is reduced to a bunch of computer code, which is all symbols and provably correct and has all the formalism you could possibly want. But at the same time, it can pretend to be functional and that the formalisms don't actually matter. It's just the results that you get. And in reality, it's all statistical and it's not based on any theoretical foundation at all, but rather just a bunch of random hunches and unmotivated parameter wiggling uh, until such time as system performance is, as they say, good enough for government work. Parameter wiggling? Was that a technical term? That is a technical term, yes. That's what I was afraid of. And it (laughs) reminds me of government and binding. Somehow. Hmm. What are parameters for if it's not to keep changing them till they give you what you wanted to get? Exactly. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, that's what all theories do, right? They give you some kind of primitives that can be adjusted. That's why they're called parameters, not malameters. (laughs) (laughs) And that brings us to the final word on theories which are sitting on the fence, and that'll be Sherry's haiku. Oh, my haiku. And this answer I really like, it would actually serve quite well for an answer to the last question at the same time. So, I mean, if you're running out of things to do, you can always write this answer twice. And I think it should serve in both places. It also shows that you can make it as a professional in academia. Here we go. And all you have to write is this. And I think this will work in almost any situation. You cannot require that I outline paradigms before I publish. It's a thing of beauty. Okay, students, I think we've given you answers to just about any question you could get about linguistic theories, uh, except those ones that have to do with pragmatics or semantics or sociolinguistics. Well, okay, we've covered a few of them. Next time, we'll cover the rest. (laughs) Okay, I believe that's all the time we have for Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we'll discuss whether English ever had an ablative case, and if so, why it seems to have eroded away to nothing. Beep, outtakes. (laughs) 
I think it had an instrumental, not an ablative, but okay. <laughs> Wait, those, those aren't the same thing. No, they're not. <laughs> the point is that ablative means eroding away as well. I didn't get that. I didn't get that it was, either. It was funny. That it was, was funny. Subtle. I just didn't. Yeah. Man, the yeah, on this yeah, show is I did not get that. It was funny. We shall throw caution to the wind and proceed in an insouciant manner. And realizing we're old, but not as old as Bill. All right. I'm not old. Uh, does this mean my dictionary is going to be out of date? <laughs> I think that's the new euphemism. His dictionary is slightly out of date. <laughs> it's a slightly inaccurate source for Middle English. <laughs> I could bring you a ukulele and you could just strum through the whole thing. But then I'd have to stick a pencil in my ear, and that would be the end of the recording. <laughs> you know, he's so hostile. It's sad. Yeah. Your life would be so much happier if you would just embrace the ukulele thing. <laughs> Ask him about his childhood. Oh, that's probably it, isn't it? It was beautiful. It was ukulele-free. <laughs> I really do think these are things that you could do. There's something interesting to talk about, and then things, things that people actually could do mm-hmm. at a party with people as nerdy as us. So. Mm-hmm. Okay, oh great. no no pressure though right no pressure no you have to get it right you just have to be amusing it's just that your problem. nerd credentials are on the line <laughs> i hate when that happens <laughs> language made difficult is brought to you by the endowment for applied phonology the endowment for applied phonology has been entrusted with a 50 million dollar grant to fund research that applies theoretical phonology <laughs> to real world bro <laughs> wait a minute <laughs> you're fired Mesrop Mashtots in the Caucasian Albanian alphabet. Mopstot Masher. (laughs) You know what? It's actually backwards. It's Stothsam Porsem, which isn't any worse. Stothsam Porsem. Yeah, and that'll show up next time, I'll bet. Item number two. Bratislav Filipov. I want there to be another syllable in that guy's name. (laughs) Filipov. Filipov. Okay. Just put one in. And as for mess, <laughs> Does the bear do her business? Sorry, let me try again. Bill was monologuing. And that's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Wait, Trey, am I doing an outro for the whole thing? <laughs> no, I have one. Okay. I also well, like the part where you decided Sherry got the final word and I didn't have a turn. <laughs> oh, didn't we have a turn? I thought you already gave us a turn. No, that's all right. Oh, well, sorry. Together in my head. Trey, somehow we skipped you. What's your answer to this question? That actually makes no sense, but it was fun to say, so I didn't really <laughs> <be right. laughs> Well, maybe it'll become an outtake.